Thank you for listening to sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Seven Letters. Seven Letters is a sermon series looking at the letters of Jesus Christ to seven ancient churches. These letters fill the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation written by John, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. As we explore these seven letters, we will seek to discover what we as the church today can learn from Christ's words to the seven churches of Revelation. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Please be seated. I don't know if you've ever run into this, but um, sometimes you have to correct people's perceptions of you, right? This is just part of human nature. A lot of times uh, stories of us go before uh, we ourselves go, and so you might enter a room and um, have a, 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 an understanding of who you are needing to be corrected or, or fixed a little bit. Uh, sometimes this is character issues where people like have heard gossip about you and you have to kind of get in there and show them who you really are. Uh, maybe it's about what you do or what you're passionate about and you've, you've found out some, some different things. Last night, my wife and I uh, were at a party and I promoted her as a phenomenal cornhole player uh, just simply because she's defeated me several times, which is a terrible measure because I'm pathetic. Uh, and so after I announced how great she was, we got utterly defeated. Uh, and so there was a perception of us uh, that was propagated by myself that needed to be corrected, and that was, in fact, Derek and Rachel make a terrible cornhole team, although we make a great couple. Um, and I've had this other truth, wrong truth. So my wife and I uh, lived in Michigan for seven months, and actually here at this church for a little while, I had to help people understand that I wasn't from Michigan. Uh, there was a bunch of people who thought I was from Michigan because that's the last place I lived before I moved here to Florida. But I really had to correct that because I'm from Minnesota, uh, which is, you know, utterly perfection um, and, 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 or utter perfection. And Michigan is not. And so I had to help people understand I come from the land of perfection, not from that other place, right? So sometimes when you walk into the room, you have to kind of correct perceptions of you. This is just part of human nature. Uh, and what we see in our text today is that Jesus comes to this church at Pergamum because the church is the physical representation of Christ on earth. Um, it, is, it is how Jesus shows himself, his truth, his love, his care, his grace to the world, 
right? Because Jesus was here, then he died, then he rose, then he left. And when he left, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to help you live out the truth of Jesus. He's going to show the world me through you. And what was happening in Pergamum was that there was some understandings of who Jesus was that were wrong because of the conduct of some of the people in the church at Pergamum. And so Jesus had to come and bring correction to the church because the church's incorrect conduct was leading to incorrect belief about who Jesus was. And so there was significant importance, and we see this in all the churches. This, uh, this series is about looking at these churches in Revelation that the book of Revelation was written to. Um, and, and Jesus, in almost every situation, talks to the church about things that need to be corrected because he cares about how he's represented on earth. He cares that people know who he really is, what his true nature and character are, uh, because there's all sorts of false uh, explanations of who Jesus is out there, and Jesus wants us to lead people to what's true. And so what is true and what matters about Jesus is true uh, are kind of insight here for us in this passage. I want to read it again. Uh, we love to keep on reading scripture because we want to hear the words and be uh, more and more attuned to what they mean. Um, and so here's uh, Revelation 2, 12 through 17 one more time, and then we'll pray and dig in further. So it says this, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even, the days, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come humbly this morning um, acknowledging and admitting that as humans, the idea of truth, the concept of truth, truth itself uh, is difficult to discern. Uh, we are prone to believing half-truths or lies. Uh, we are tempted ourselves to subdue the truth or to push it down uh, because sometimes it hurts us to talk about what's true. It's offensive to us. It may make us uncomfortable. Um, but I pray today that you would pull us closer into this reality that the truth of Jesus is the most beautiful, that it is the most life-giving, that it is the most liberating and healing and restorative truth that exists, and that it is, in fact, capital T, truth, that Jesus is truth, that what is true of Jesus is true, and that he, are, that he was really here on earth that he is really God, that he really did die for us in our place because of our broken sin that needed to be washed away. And he really did rise again from the grave to give us life that we could not obtain by ourselves. 
and that today he really does rule and reign as King Jesus. He cares about us as his church. He prays for us as his people. And he is coming again for us to one day completely finish that which was started. So God, our Father, we ask you to help us to worship you as Father, to turn away from the father of lies, Satan himself, who Jesus talks about in this passage, who would like to deceive us and destroy us, that we would run away from him and run toward you, um, that we would see Jesus clearly today as the one who alone is worthy of worship and honor, who alone deserves to sit on the throne uh, as elevated king of everything. We ask this all in Christ's name, amen. So in order to really get into what Jesus is after with this passage today, we need a, a good understanding of this concept of idolatry, okay? Um, idolatry is something that, to a lot of us in our day and time, seems like an ancient practice, an, an, an old thing that people used to do. Uh, and we see it talked about in Scripture. We hear uh, warnings read to us. Uh, we even see old religions in the Old Testament with weird idols and fires and altars and, you know, that kind of strange stuff. And we think, oh man, I'm so glad we people have evolved beyond that silliness, that sorcery, that superstition. We're cognizant, wise, knowledgeable, reasonable human beings, and we don't deal with that idolatry stuff. Uh, and the fact is that Idolatry just simply gets redressed uh, in every place, in every time, in every culture, amongst every people. Uh, and that this has happened since Adam. It happened to him and his uh, family. It happened to Abraham and his family. It happened in Moses' time uh, amongst the prophets, of course, when Jesus walked the earth. Um, idolatry is an old trick, and it has not died. Um, idolatry simply is that there are things that we set up as ultimate things, as things worthy of worship and attention and devotion. And the reason they're idols is because they're crafted or they're made, right? Like when we think of weird old idols, we're thinking of actual totem poles or little gods put on thrones, or maybe we're thinking of like, India or something, you know. Um, but really, we've crafted things that are idols in their own right, right here in our own lives, here in the West, here in America, uh, because these idols basically set themselves up as, as gods. Um, and what idols do is they basically make false promises to us. They tell us of great fulfillment that is to come if we are to just give our lives over to them. Right In the ancient days, this was promises of rain, promises of fertility, promises of good crops, promises of successful warriors or triumphant kings. And so the gods would demand a worship of some sort in order to give success in another area of life. And that was how ancient civilizations saw idolatry and saw the, the gods that they set up. But, but we have the very same things in our life and in our times that make different promises to us Right? We don't necessarily feel the need for victorious kings or to pray for rain, right? Because we understand how clouds and science and the globe spin. Like, but 
we still seek fulfillment in idols and we ask things to give us what they promise and we're willing to lay down and worship them uh, in exchange. Idols bring short-term relief to the boredom of life, to the emptiness or insignificance we feel because they promise that they will give us the things we long for. That's what idols do. Tim Keller says it very well in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. He says, it's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek uh, to give you what only God can give you. That's out of this book. If you've never read it, I highly encourage you to read it. Um, it is a, uh, an evaluation of our modern times and the idols that we worship. So Counterfeit Gods is a great, fairly quick read from Tim Keller about this whole subject. Now the crazy and, and very deceptive thing about idols is that idols are usually not in and of themselves bad. They're not bad things. What idols are are simply good things turned into ultimate things. And that's what's so deceptive about the idols that our world puts out there. Usually it's good stuff. Usually it's enjoyable stuff. Usually it's even stuff that are in their true gift or in their true nature, gifts from God, right? Like we make idols out of all sorts of things. We take these good things and we turn them into little g gods. Things like jobs, or marriage, or education, or a vacation. We, we turn, they're good, but what we do is we take this good thing and we thrust all of our hope at rescue into those things, and we believe if we can just have it, that it will deliver us from what? From boredom, from insignificance, from the feelings of lack and despair. We think if I can just get that thing in my life, right, then, 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 I'll be happy. Then I'll ultimately be satisfied. So really anything, anything that you can possess or obtain or get a hold of or enjoy, anything in life can become an idol. It really can. It's quite powerful the way these things come into our lives. And they come in all shapes and sizes. They can be personal idols. Our culture holds up idols and propagates particular things as idols. There are intellectual idols, vocational idols. You might work in a particular area of industry, and within that area of industry, there are certain idols. There's absolutely no shortage of idols in our world because as John Calvin said, every human heart is an idol factory. We all are prone to build idols. And we live in a, in a marketplace of idols. There are basically idol makers and idol sellers and idol buyers everywhere we walk. Like, it's like going to Saturday market and just like chilling down and like all the little tents are set. I mean, it's just idols, idols, idols everywhere we walk, everywhere we go. And so we need the wisdom to understand that we're tempted to worship these things. And one of the ways that we can kind of identify, 
what's, what's an idol to me or what's an idol to my world? We can just kind of ask some diagnostic questions. And one of them is just the question about what it is in your life that you cannot live without. If there's something that you think, if I lost that, I would die. Or my life would have no meaning. Right? One of the most potent recent examples of this reality is when markets crash. For instance, 08, 09-ish, right? When markets crashed, the real estate bubble burst, and high-ranking Wall Street executives were ending their lives because all of the work that they had done to build up all of their wealth suddenly evaporated in the midst of several weeks of bad trade, and so therefore they had nothing to live for. If you had built an empire of real estate holdings and suddenly the value was cut down to 25%, there was nothing to live for. It was just a very strong reality of what happens when we lose the things that we think we cannot live without. We can also often ask ourselves the question, what is it that you do not yet have in your life that you think once you have, you will be complete? That thing is an idol. That thing is promising to you ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment, and it is gaining your attention and your devotion and your energy and your dedication. You have set it up as God. You're worshiping it. We're worshiping these things because we think that they will fulfill us. Ultimately, the things that we idolize become our masters. They dominate our lives. They rule us. They become Lord for us. Rebecca Pippert puts it this way. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. We give ourselves to these idols. We make sacrifices to these idols. We look back on ancient civilizations and we say how dumb that they would give some of their crops or their livestock or in some really jacked up cases their babies, their kids to these gods and burn that stuff at an altar trying to earn the favor of a god. That's absurdity. It's ridiculous. And yet at the same time, we're willing to lose sleep. We're willing to compromise relationships. We're willing to estrange ourselves from our friends and our families if they would dare speak against the ultimate pursuit that we're going after. We're willing to make sacrifices, to lay down stuff on the altar so that we can elevate idols in our lives. So we look at this Bible and we hear it speak of idolatry and we kind of laugh. <laughs> we think those silly, silly cultures. When we're just being short-sighted and ignorant to the fact that every culture and every time and every place has idols. We do much the same as they do. I've heard a story told many times of an American pastor who had uh, uh, a native from India visiting and this man was a pastor in India and was coming to America to uh, teach at this church. And the pastor was driving this man from India around town, showing him his city that he was proud of, 
with all its beautiful buildings and wonderful things to do. And he said to the man from India, you know, it must be strange to you to, to not see all the kind of religious stuff, you know, that you see every day in India. You know, like the weird idols and, you know, the shrines that are everywhere and the people in their religious outfits. It must be weird to, to be in a place that doesn't have all that. And the man from India answered and was like, actually, I'm quite astounded at how much more prevalent idol worship is here in America. And the pastor was taken aback like, you're kind of dumb. I don't know what you're talking about. We don't worship idols. He's like, well, there's that stadium over there that fits 45,000 people in it that all wear the same colored outfit. And they burst into pandemonium over a group of people running around on a field. You know, you've got these giant buildings with these edifices. At the top of the edifice, there's, there's logos for banks and law firms and corporations. They're nothing more than shrines built to man's achievement, to the lure of riches, right? You see all these people dressed the same, basically. They're all fitting in to a particular look, a particular feel. Sure, it doesn't look like some tribal nation, but they're all falling in line with a God that tells them how to dress. They're all driving the same things, pursuing the same goals, willing to endure a lifeless marriage so long as they have a lot of money. It's like, America's full of idols, yo. He probably didn't say yo. But it's not a strange concept. It wasn't a strange concept to him because he saw that people in all times, in all places, are prone to have idols in their life. And this is the truth for us, right? We've grown so accustomed to the idols of our world because they're just a regular part of our everyday life. We're born watching them, seeing them around us, hearing our parents speak of them. We go to school and we're baptized in their ideologies, right? We grow up with them as just natural surroundings. So it, it just doesn't seem like idols, but we need to realize that indeed there are. And we ought to ask ourselves, what are the things that I'm prone to worship? What are some of the personal idols that I have? What, do, what are the things that I think if I just have that, then, then I will be fulfilled? Then I'll really be somebody, right? What are the, what are the, uh, the, the idols in our, in our culture? What are the things around us that people say, this is the thing you have to have in order to be alive, in order to overcome the boredom of life? If you have these things, then you'll be full. Then you'll be happy. Then you will be satisfied. We ought to be wise to these things, to be aware of these false gods and to understand their allure and their power. Because most of the time, our world identifies these idols as ultimate. And we're called as followers of Jesus to understand there really is only one ultimate, and that is God himself. And so to a world of idolatry, Jesus says these words, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet... You hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Twice 
in that short amount of time, Jesus says, Satan lives there. <laughs> What's he talking about? This is crazy talk. Like, the devil lives in Pergamum? I don't get it. I thought he was somewhere else. That was strange. Well, for the people in Pergamum, and this is where understanding, like we talked about last week, understanding the city and understanding the place is really, did, did that picture work, Ben? I got a picture of Pergamum. Oh, it's not very big. Sorry. Um, so Pergamum had this, uh, this kind of ascent, and the, the, the city was at the base of this, this hill that rose. Um, and all along this hill in Pergamum were temples and altars to gods, okay? Crowned by, at the top, a giant temple or altar to Zeus, in which he was depicted as looking over the city, kind of ruling over the city. Pergamum was the first place in Asia to build a temple to Caesar, okay? Uh, Rome was actually petitioned by the people in Pergamum. They said, hey, listen, we love you guys a lot. We love Rome. Rome's great, right? We love Rome so much that this is what we're going to do. We're going to build a temple to Caesar in our town. And so in 29 BC, the first uh, Asian temple to Caesar was erected in Pergamum before any other city had one. Okay, the city we talked about last week had one, but not until a couple years after Pergamum. So Pergamum was like first to say Caesar's Lord. As a city, they made the proclamation Caesar is Lord. Let it be known because of this giant edifice on a hill that Caesar is the one to be worshipped. That it is Caesar's feet that we bow down to. That it is the signet ring upon Caesar's hand that we kiss. And so Pergamum was filled with all of these temples and all of this idolatry. There was also uh, a temple to Asclepius. I don't know how to pronounce that but he was called the Savior God. They called him Savior. There was a temple in Pergamum to the Savior, not Jesus, but to Asclemos. He's actually the guy whose statue had a staff with snakes twirled around it. You might be familiar with that idea. It comes from medicine because he was one of the gods of healing. And so they worshiped that God thinking if they worshiped him, they would have health. Right? Do you see the parallels? We have in our city temples and thrones set up to the gods of our age. Sure, it's not Caesar, but there are loyalties here amongst us. Our city has proclaimed, we will bow down to this power, to this goodness that the world gives, because we want to make it ultimate. And so Jesus says to this church, I know. I know where you live. He said to the church at Ephesus, I know what you do. He said to the church at Smyrna, I know what you're suffering. And he says to the church at Pergamum, I know where you live. He's trying to say, listen, I get it. The pressure is intense. 
when you get up in the morning and you walk outside and you go to the street and you look down the street, it points you right to the hill that is filled with altars and temples that call you to worship false gods. Jesus says, I know. I get it. I understand that this seat of Satan, so to say, is the place that you live in. John Stott says he's not ignorant of the fact that the Christian church is set in the non-Christian world and that it feels on all sides the continuous pressure of heathen influence. Jesus knows. So he knew that about Pergamum and he knows that about us. He knows that we live in a marketplace of idols and he knows that we're prone to believe that we will be healthy if we pursue certain things, that we will be satisfied if we go after certain things, that we will find ultimate pleasure that cannot be interrupted if we pursue gods of this world. Jesus says, I know. I know the false promises. I know the false gods. I know the pressure that surrounds you. And then he encourages the church. He says, listen, I know this, and yet, in the midst of all this pressure, you hold fast to faith in me. As in the days of Antipas, right? My faithful witness. Antipas was a guy who lost his life because he would not bow to Caesar. Pergamum was a city that was called uh, a place of the sword because Rome had given them an official edict that they could execute people on behalf of the Roman Empire. And so Pergamum did it. They offed Christians who wouldn't bow to Caesar. They'd bring them in, put them on trial and say, we hear you worship Jesus, not Caesar. Is that true? And they'd go, yeah, Jesus is Lord. That's where the phrase gained its popularity amongst Christians because the whole world around them was saying Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the ultimate idol that if I worship, he will provide all the security and all the peace and all the health and all the prosperity that I could ever want because Caesar guaranteed it with his vast armies and his, and his wonderful proconsul and all of his wealth. He promised prosperity to the world. And you looked around you, if you were in modern area in Pergamum in that day, you looked around you and it was true. Prosperity was everywhere. And yet the call to the Christian was to worship Jesus as Lord. Why? Because true fulfillment was never going to come from Caesar. True fulfillment was never going to come from bowing the knee to a world power. True satisfaction, lasting, deep, internal peace was not going to come from Rome. It comes only from Jesus, who is the true Lord, who is the true one worthy of our worship. And this resistance to the world power is a major theme in Revelation. Some of the kind of confusing stuff about a dragon and a beast and this, these different word images that are in Revelation, they're all about living in a world that promises prosperity if you simply bow down to the world empire. That's what that's all about. The dragon was Satan in Revelation, and the dragon raised up a beast to garner worship for him. And so the world empires from Rome's time to today's time, have always said, so long as you worship the world's power, you will be satisfied. And it's not true. And in Revelation, we see the church enduring that onslaught from Satan himself. 
And so this church is encouraged by Jesus. Jesus says it's tough to live where you live. Right? We said this last week. Jesus doesn't say leave. Jesus doesn't say go hide away and find some cave off the beaten path so that you don't have to deal with all that idolatry anymore. Okay? Jesus doesn't say build a wall and secure yourselves away from all of that nasty influence in Pergamum. Okay? Jesus says, be faithful and trust even your life to the one who's truly Lord. Same call for us today. So Jesus does encourage this church, but he also corrects this church. And we see that in verse 14. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Uh, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we heard about the Nicolaitans in, in the letter to Ephesus. Not a whole lot of information about them, but their teaching is kind of uh, parallel to Balaam's teaching. Okay? So we don't have the time, but Balaam is in the book of Numbers. Um, Numbers is kind of the story of the wandering uh, after Egypt. Okay, so uh, Israel was captive in Egypt. Moses was called to go to Pharaoh and say, set the people free, right? The plagues happened in Egypt. Egypt. Pharaoh says, get, get out of here. <laughs> I'm done with you. Get, right? So they cross the Red Sea. The whole chariots get pummeled in the sea and all that stuff. And, and then Israel wanders around in the desert for 40 years, even though it was a 12-day journey, uh, to get to where they were supposed to go because they were disobedient to God. So during that wandering, we have a whole account of what goes on, and it's the book of Numbers. It's a weird title. I don't know why it's called Numbers. It should be called The Journey or something. Um, that might have been bad for me to say. Um, so they're, they're wandering in Numbers, and, and right toward the end of the wandering, like, here's Israel, here's the River Jordan, right over there is the Promised Land. Okay? So they're like, they're ready. They're ready to go in, and they're in the land of Moab. They're in the wilderness of Moab before they cross the Jordan, right? So there's a king in Moab named Balak, and Balak's scared to death of Israel because he's heard about how they've kind of wandered the desert and trampled a bunch of people because God, like, shows up and fire falls and crazy stuff happens and armies of, like, 12 people beat 40 million and just, like, crazy stuff going on. So Balak's freaking out, like, pulling his hair out, anxious, can't sleep at night. And he's like, we got to do something about this. And he pairs up with the Midians and they get a bunch of money together and they go to this guy named Balaam who I think he's just, like, a crazy dude who lives in caves. But supposedly he's like a prophet, you know, like a witch sorcerer type of a guy. And so they come to Balaam, and they're like, listen, man, this, this people, is, they're crazy. Like, no one can stop them. So here's what we need you to do. We need you to curse them so that they all die. Can you do that? Balaam's like, yeah, man, show me the dough. So they give him the money, and Balaam gets up on this cliff, overlooks Israel, and he starts to open his mouth to give an oracle. He's like, this is the oracle of Balaam, and he starts to try to curse the people of Israel, and God overpowers him and makes him bless them. And he's like, what, 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 whoa, not cool. He looks at Balak. He's like, this isn't good. Let me try it again. Does it again, blesses the people of Israel. What's going on? Third time, gets up blesses the people of Israel and prophesies the Messiah will come. He says, one day a king who will rule the world is going to come from Israel. He's like, ah, dang it, what's going on? Right? Like, it's just really confounded. 
So finally, he devises a plan. He's like, I know. I know how to destroy Israel. It's not going to be curses. Here's what you do, almighty Balak of the Moabites. Go get some really cute girls from amongst you and go down there and walk around in front of the boys, you know, and tell them, come here, honey, right? Then you get some of those guys to follow those girls and to fall in love with them and to sleep with them and to worship your gods. That will be the death of Israel. And it happens. And a mighty plague befalls Israel. And then this dude named Phineas, not Phineas and Ferb, Phineas, one of the sons of the priests, he sees it happening and he grabs a spear and he thrusts it through the heart of this guy who's committing adultery with one of the Midianite women and God ends the plague. Okay, so what's going on? Why does Jesus say you hold to the teachings of Balaam? He's saying the false gods that are worshipped around you have followers. And those followers want to entice you to worship their God instead of your God. They want you to look to their God as ultimate. They want you to look to their idols as though they'll satisfy you. Some of it's going to include sex. You're just going to give your body over to pursue pleasure. And don't worry, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's, it's for a good thing. Some of it includes festivals, meals, and celebrations. It's like, no, listen, pay homage to the gods of the age. It's okay. It's okay. And amongst the people in Pergamum were folks who taught like this and who lived like this. They said, yeah, I worship Jesus and all that, but I really like to do these things too. Because these things make me feel good. Because these things promise prosperity. Because if I do these things, I'll be really popular. My name might get in the paper. If I do these things, I'll get more followers and friends. If I do these things, life will go well for me. And so in that church, though they were faithful to Jesus as Lord, they did not bow to Caesar. They saw these other idolatries start to creep in and pull them away from faithful living to Jesus. So they'd say Jesus is Lord, but they'd live as though Zeus were Lord, or Asclamos was Lord, or Diana was Lord, right? And we think, oh, silly false Greek gods. No, no, money is Lord. Prosperity is Lord. A big thriving business is Lord. Acceptance with the in crowd is Lord, right? And it seeps in, and we begin to mingle our worship. We sing, we read, and we proclaim, Jesus, you're everything. Then Monday to Saturday, we live as if a dollar's everything. Or for me, as if approval's everything. Guys, I'm right here with you. The world lies to me all the time and says, so long as people think you're cool, everything so long as no one speaks ill of you. That Jesus promised would happen. So long as no one speaks ill of you, you'll be fine. 
right? So long as the followers and friends increase and there are no perceivable enemies, your life will be smooth sailing. I believe a lie. I look at the world to give me what Jesus alone can give me. And I'm prone to worship false idols. We are prone to worship false idols. And Jesus' word is very simple and very clear. Repent. Right? We said a couple weeks ago, repentance is a changing of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's, I was going this way, and I stop, and I start going this way. That's what repentance is. And listen, it has to happen almost every day. Erase the almost. Every day. We have to remember the false promises are false. The fake idols are fake. Right? We have to remember that what is true is true of Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Jesus makes this call to them to repent. And what's beautiful is that he says, if not, I will come and uh, come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this sounds fierce, right? Swords and, and, and war. And it is. It's intense. But the manifestation of this truth from Jesus is Jesus himself. Because truth is not just an idea. Truth is a person. And the truth of Jesus was manifest as he walked the earth. And what was he doing? He was loving those who had not any love in their life. He was calling friend the ones that the world ostracized. He was battling against those who stood in religious arrogance and said they had all the answers and were perfectly righteous. Right? The kindness and the grace and the humility of Jesus is what it looks like for him to come with the sword to us. Right now, in this day, the truth comes to us in the gospel. Right? The truth is not the Inquisition. That's not the truth. The truth is not burning heretics at the stake. Okay? The truth is not restrictive legislation boxes people in. The truth is the king of the universe dying for those who are wrong. That's the truth. Jesus opens this letter by saying, I'm the one who has the truth sword coming out of my mouth. What does that mean? That means what he speaks is true and what he speaks is grace is yours through me. Your empty heart that cannot find rest in any other idol will find rest in me. All of your religious pursuits, the stuff that you try to do to appease gods before you, you don't have to do it anymore. All you have to do is look to me and believe that what I've done, I did for you. That what I died, I died in your place. That when I rose, you rose in me. All of the work is on my shoulders and I've done it for you. Jesus comes to us with that truth. And if you're humbled, and if the Spirit is active in your heart, you will bow to that truth. You will recognize there is a ring to that that is better than anything this world sells you all day long. But if you resist it, it will come back, and it will one day be 
the sword that judges you. Because the truth of Jesus will stand. That to, tr to find true wholeness, to find life in Jesus is the only true way to find life. And when we turn from that life, we turn towards death. So my call to you today from the letter of Pergamum is to bow to the truth of Jesus today. To bow to the grace, to the goodness, to the peace that he offers, to his life and his death and his resurrection so that you might have life. Not finding life in the idols of this world, but finding life in him because he's enough for us. I will never grow tired of telling you that Jesus is better than the best possible job you could get. I will never tire of telling you that Jesus is better than your dream house or your dream vacation or that dreamy guy. Jesus is better than the perfect marriage and the perfect obedient children. Jesus is better than all that money and all that health and all that comfort and all those things, gadgets. Jesus is better. And if that's strange to you, let's press in. Let's figure out why. Because it's true. And as Jesus makes us a people who delight primarily in him rather than in the idols of this world, he is putting before our city his representations. Right? His nature and his character is shown in us when we worship him truly and turn away from the idols of this world. Let's be those people. Let's repent. Not just now, but keep on repenting. <laughs> turning away from those idols and turning to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your kindness to us that comes in the person and the work of Jesus. We recognize that we live in a place that is filled with idols. God, it is not a strange surrounding to you. You know it. Because Jesus lived in it. He endured in the midst of it. He faced the temptations that we face. And he overcame victoriously by living the perfect life that we cannot live. A life that never bowed down to any idols. That's what we need, and we can't do it alone. We need you to do it for us, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you would lead us to the humble posture that says nothing else will satisfy but Jesus. Nothing else will bring peace but Jesus. Nothing else will last and endure but Jesus. Because he is the hidden manna, the thing that will sustain us for all eternity. Thank you, God, that as we endure, we have a promise ahead of us of knowing you forever. We pray this all in Christ's name.
Amen.